title this message today, O Foolish Galatians. Not a very auspicious thing to consider, not exactly a compliment, but the Galatian church had received the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And were soon after, and, and very soon after, they were already showing signs of being misled from the pure doctrine. Apparently, they had been approached by Jews who wanted to influence them by the doctrine of those who were circumcised. Okay, they wanted to affect the Galatian churches, and there were several of them. But they wanted to get the circumcision into the requirement in order to be called Christians. Uh, nowhere else do we see that other churches were being pressured to accept circumcision or not to be considered worthy of being received into the Christian church, although Christianity was not yet known as Christianity at that time, but rather it was known as the way. That's what, that's what the group of people that believed in Jesus Christ at the time were called. It was the way. So here we find a group of people who had believed in this new way, and now other people who apparently had, credi had credibility by virtue of their Jewishness were trying to make the Galatians accept Jewish traditions such as circumcision in order to be uh, what we might call today politically correct, part of the tradition, part of the need that the Jews had that they needed to be circumcised if they were going to be Jewish, if they were going to be a Jew, they needed to be circumcised from childhood. Eight days old, all the boys were circumcised. So these were adults now, of course, that were believing in the way, in the new doctrine, in the gospel. The apostle Paul got wind of this, and knowing the Galatians was struck by the apparent fact that the Galatians were either accepting the requirement of circumcision or were complaining about it, that they did not necessarily want to go through this. And if you know what it entails, you know why they didn't necessarily want to succumb to it, to put themselves under that requirement. Let's read in uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 1, 6 through 12, what Paul is telling them about this new development. And it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. Actually, he says, it's not another gospel. It's the same gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, if anyone comes to you and changes anything from what you have already learned, let him be accursed or be put under a curse. 
as we have said before, so now I say again. So this tells us he had talked to the Galatians before. He had taught them, he had been there, and now he's reacting that so soon after they had become Christian churches, they were now being deviated from the beliefs that they had been taught by Paul and others. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you recall, of course, Paul's beginning as a Christian was when he was on the way to Damascus to uh, arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to have them thrown in prison when Jesus Christ appeared to him in the vision that he saw. Even though those around him did not see it, he did see Jesus speaking to him, heard his voice. I don't know if he saw the face of Jesus, but he knew that he was speaking through to Christ and that Christ was giving him the commandment that he was going to open up the way to the Gentiles and take the gospel to them. So he says, now, what I taught you was taught to me by revelation from God. This isn't something that some class was held to teach to me or that any of the disciples or apostles of Jesus Christ taught me. I learned this, I received this by revelation from God. How can you be so weak in your belief that you're willing to change from the gospel that was previously given to you? Who could possibly deceive you so easily that you would believe them? This is what Paul is telling the Galatian churches. What might their credentials have shown that make you gullible to them? What could they have said? What could they have shown how could they have convinced you so soon to receive a perversion of the gospel that I taught you? Paul is aghast at the change the Galatians were willing to accept that he tells them, I marvel that you're turning so soon from him who called you. The word marvel means you're astounded. It's, it's something I've never seen or I haven't seen. It's too much it, uh, to bear. How could this be? It was unbelievable for Paul to accept that these churches were being deceived into changing from the gospel they had known, they had received. It was the Holy Spirit who called them and now men were perverting the word of God and they the Galatians, were willing to listen to that lie. I want to digress here for just a moment to address uh, that some problems 
in our society are very similar to what these guys were going through. Are we not, and in fact, have we not seen the problem in our lifetime of the perversion of the Word of God? Are we not seeing it today? Is it not actually increasing in intensity, the push against Christianity? Without going into a tirade about it, uh, don't we see the problem of so many translations of the Bible? How can there be so many ways to say the same thing? God only used one message, but man has tried to say it from so many different perspectives. So many different ways. This is what God meant. We must have at least 50, if not more, translations floating out there. But yet, if we were to hear the word of God, it, it's once, and that's it. What did God say? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am God, I change not. But man has taken that and run with the fact that I'm going to change this translation because I may be extremely skeptical about this, but I think some of them have done it just because they want to promote their particular organizations. They want to promote their own education, their own elucidation. They want to promote how learned they are. And they come out with a new translation of the Word of God. I wonder how God himself sees that. The apostle says in verse 6 through 7, and, and still the first chapter, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Those who came to the Galatians were, in fact, perverting the gospel by adding to it by adding to the gospel. Paul tells them that the changes being forced on them were not those given by God. Why should they accept them? Indeed, why should they accept them? Why do so many today accept Bible translations that want to water down the gospel? Water it down. Why are people looking for ways to lessen the impact of the true word of God so that they don't feel guilty about the sinful acts they want to perform? And that's what a lot of, of the results are when we get a translation that isn't quite as strong about emphasizing sin is sin and it has its reward. And it's called hell. There's no other way to put it. That's what the word says. Sin will lead to hell if continued, if the lifestyle is such that it's a sinful lifestyle. The reward for that is already clearly outlined in the word of God. 
Paul wanted to draw the Galatians back to the truth as he had taught, that, taught it to them, but others were more interested in painting the truth in another way. Instead of watering down the gospel, they were making it worse because they were adding to it. Get circumcised or you can't be a member of this church. Now, you know, it reminds me of the churches that used to tell the men that their hair could not be so long that it touched the collar of their shirt. The collar of their shirt. You, you can't wear your hair that long. Otherwise, you can't be in this You're going to have to leave until you come back with your hair a little shorter. Now, I don't know how that enhanced the Word of God. I don't know how that made a person a better Christian to have shorter hair, long, uh, short enough that it didn't touch the collar of their shirt. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Otherwise, you might be asked not to come back to that church. What if Jesus went to the crowds, uh, when the crowds followed him into the hillsides or by the sea, came out to hear him, and he demanded that everyone should be dressed in their finest clothing. What if he did that? What if he put that burden on people and said, you dress up. When you come out there, you be bathed, clean, combed, and be wearing your Sunday best because I'm going to talk to you. Otherwise, he wouldn't teach them. What if he did that? How many people would have started to say, what is, you know, even though they had so many weird regulations in the, in the, Jewish tradition, uh, I think this one would have sent him, sent him over the edge. What do you mean? Wear my best to go sit on the ground or on a rock or be out there in the grass or weeds or whatever? Wear my best clothing? Well, that's similar to what this requirement of the hair on the collar would have been. But that's the deception that people want to interject when we're talking about the Word of God, where does that fit in there? The pure Word of God doesn't have any physical requirements that are not governed by the spiritual needs that God puts in our hearts. When we receive Jesus Christ, we automatically change because God is different than man. Or did we not know that? Were we not aware that God is different than man? Even though we are his creation, and even though we are made in his wonderful image, he's still God. He's still the creator. He still created each one of us, and he is different because he is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, omniscient, it's a wonderful thing to think about who God is if we are going to serve him. How would that enhance their hearts to receive the gospel? Do you remember when Chuck Smith used to tell, them, uh, tell us about the time when new carpeting was going to be installed at the Calvary Chapel out in Costa Mesa, and someone in the church was suggesting, one of the officials, that the hippies that frequented the church because Chuck and Kay Smith had brought the hippies in. 
They had gone out, witnessed to the hippies, got them saved, and the hippies followed them. And they would come to church, and they would come barefoot, and they would come and sit on the ground on the floor at the church if there was no room in chairs, and their feet were dirty, and sometimes they were as well. But someone suggested, well, if the hippies come in, their feet are dirty, and the new carpeting, they're going to stain it. They're going to dirty it. And Chuck's answer was, then maybe we don't need new carpeting. But we need to have the hippies here. We need to have them hear the word of God because God loves them too. And if they can't come here, where are they going to go and hear the word of God just so that we can have new carpeting? You understand? That's the collar. That's the requirement of the hair to the collar. That's what that was. They're going to mess up our new carpeting. Then don't put the new carpeting so that nobody gets angry about stain messes and whatnot. The gospel requires a cleansing of the heart and mind and spirit for those are all internal, not external requirements. Christ gave several examples of those who sought glory by their works. But Jesus told the disciples that they would only receive glory from men who would look at them in awe and say, wow, what a great Christian person that is. Or wow, look at all the money that person is giving. He must really be good. He must really have a great place in heaven because he's giving so much. And Christ would say, no, they don't have a great place in heaven. If their heart isn't right, if they haven't got Jesus Christ in their heart, it doesn't matter if they give away their entire fortune. They're not getting into heaven for that. Paul was teaching them all over again because the deception had already done its work and they needed to be reminded of the truth. So here we go back to let's start from square one. Start from A. This end, he was recounting his own experiences now, how he had been moved by the Spirit to do certain things or go to certain places. And let's look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Then after 14 years, 14 years of teaching, of Paul's teaching, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation. You understand, Paul, Paul was submitted to God, period. Paul was willing to do God's work. How's God going to communicate to him? The revelation. He submitted himself in prayer to the revelation of God. And so through revelation, he says, I went to, up to Jerusalem, and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. He said, this is what I'm teaching the, te the, the churches out there. I want you folks to hear it. He went up to Jerusalem to the church there. And he said, this is what the Gentiles are receiving but privately to those who were of reputation. 
such as Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus by night because he was a member of the council. He did not want others to be seeing him talking to Christians. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He says, my, this kid that I brought with me, this disciple of mine, no one was forcing him to get circumcised, but yet someone else is going out there and telling the Galatians that they need to submit to that. Verse 4, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That was the intent, subterfuge, underhanded stuff. They wanted to get in there and subtly become important in the church enough so that people would start believing them. That's what they were doing. They were coming in on the sly. Verse 5, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. When we heard that, he said, we turned it away. We turned a deaf ear to them because we could tell this is not the truth. This is not the word of God. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, he says, some of these people appeared important, and I don't know what importance they were trying to give themselves. That's what he's saying here. It makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. God doesn't play favorites. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Those who were portraying themselves as important, they weren't adding anything. They were bringing in a lie. How could that add anything to a Christian person? In verse 4, Paul is saying that false brethren who were brought in as spies, if their intentions were good, there would have been no need to come in by stealth. There would have been no need for them to come in slyly, to slip in, to be deceptive. There would have been no need for that if they were coming in with the truth. They would not have had to be looking for ways to put people in bondage. But that's the way the enemy creeps into an individual's life, and not just individuals, but to whole churches, isn't it? How many remember the laughing movement? How many remember the laughing movement? Some years back, it was sweeping through the Christian churches. These guys came out, I don't know where they got it, they said, this is the joy of the Lord, and they would start this baloney of laughing in the church as if the Spirit of God is with us and we can't stop laughing and they would start laughing and people were seeing them and they started laughing because those clowns looked ridiculous, but it was a movement of God, they called it. 
And it was a laughing movement. How many of you remember the barking movement? Where they were barking like dogs in church. As if it was a move of God. It was ridiculous. That laughing movement was enough, but barking? I mean, if Paul had had a chance, he would have probably called them, get these dogs out of here. You know? But I don't recall that he said that because it's not recorded in the Bible, so I'm paraphrasing. Take it for what it is, okay? Was that of the Lord? Absolutely not. Where in the Bible do you find that, that they were laughing in the churches? If anything, they usually had somber, serious faces because the subject of Christ was serious. Not that they were sad, not that they were putting down anybody being happy. On the contrary, joy and happiness are promoted in the church, but not to the extent of being ridiculous. And yet, these moves swept into churches as a move of God. Deceiving people. And there were a lot of people that started laughing too because they didn't want to appear. I'm not getting it. No. Hey, I'm laughing too. Look at The Spirit has got me laughing. Give me a break. This whole book of Galatians is a great book on correction because Paul addresses several problem areas that had developed in the Galatian churches, and we still find them today in our churches. Some things never change, do they? Some things never change. He also addressed the issue of hypocrisy when he talked about what Peter had done. And he, I don't want to paraphrase, so let's read in the Bible, in chapter 2, 11 through 16, what happened, what transpired regarding hypocrisy. And it says now, verse 11, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to blame. To be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, in other words, people from Jerusalem would come, other Jews that were Christian, that had accepted, but were still of the Jewish tradition, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. You understand? Before they came, he was buddy-buddy with the Gentiles. He was eating with them. He was having fellowship with them because he was a Christian now. And he didn't see them differently because Jesus hadn't seen them differently. Jesus went to the cross for them. Jesus had given up his life to save these Gentiles too. And Paul, uh, Peter, rather, was there fellowshipping with them. But as soon as he spotted people that were circumcised, Jews, that came from James, and he separated himself from them as if to say, I don't want them to see me. I don't want them to see me having fellowship, having a good time with my fellow brothers that are now Christians. 
And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Paulus, man, Paul was right up front. I would have loved to have met him in, in life, but I'm going to meet him in heaven. I'm going to do my best to get to meet Paul in heaven because he was right up front. He was willing to tell it like it is and did because he addressed Peter no less. So that even Barnabas, that's the guy that came with Paul to preach, to tell those churches, this is what we're doing out there. This is the work we're taking to the Gentiles. This, he was a convert. And it says even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. He was starting to see that, oh, this must be normal. Uh, I have to separate myself from these Gentiles then. You understand? Just being around evil perverts. We have to be aware of that. Evil perverts. And the more you hang around it, the easier it might be for you to fall. That's why it's so important that we keep our perspective straight about where we go, what we say, who we hang around with, who we talk to, what it is we're talking about. We have to be so careful and protect the sanctity of God in us. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, in front of everyone, I addressed Peter and said, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Now, he was talking about the circumcision because they had not yet reached the accord that they were not going to require it of Gentiles coming into the Christian movement. But here he was talking to Peter because they hadn't addressed that problem yet. And so Peter was still with the Gentiles that were requiring circumcision of the Gentiles. But he's, he tells him, if you're acting like the Gentiles already and you can live like them, why are you making those guys live as Jews? Why can't they stay Gentiles but receive the blessing of the, the presence of God, the spirit of God, the truth of God, the gospel of God? Why can't they do that without this circumcision? Wasn't that a requirement of the law? And he goes on to explain, of course, later on in the chapter here about the law, the difference between the law and grace and faith. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So what Peter was doing when he was with the Gentiles, he acted as they did. But when the Jews came around, he reverted back to the things of the Jews. 
He acted like the Jews so that they would not accuse him of being a turncoat, of being a traitor. They were still afraid of being criticized for being truthful. But thank God, no one acts that way today, right? Isn't that wonderful? Look how far we've come. <laughs> Aren't we something? <laughs> God, I'm glad Paul isn't here today. We don't see that in our churches today, do we? Are there men who blend in at work so that no one would know they are Christians because they don't want to be called names? Ever hear the pet name for Christians? How, how about the Bible thumpers? Remember Bible thumpers? That's what they call, they call the Christians because they have the Bible and the preachers. <laughs> so they were called Bible thumpers. How about hallelujahs? Ever, anybody ever hears a Christian being called an hallelujah? Did we, did we jump in and defend that person that was being called a hallelujah? If you were already a Christian, did we jump in and defend him? Or did anyone? I'll bet you they all went, look. Is that what he is? Maybe they also said, hallelujah. Do you also hide your identity at work? Uh, with your family, with your friends, at the gym, et cetera, et cetera, wherever you go? Do we hide our identity? As the question is asked, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Isn't that something straightforward? If somebody said, you're a Christian, would they be able to identify you as a Christian because of the way that you had acted or the way that you spoke or because you prayed for your food at work or wherever it was, school, wherever you were, other people were gathered that were not Christians? Could they accuse you and know for sure that you were a Christian? Paul was touching on so many points because the gospel covers all facets of our lives. He had to get a little hard with them because so much was affected by the deception. In verse 3, let's read what Paul asked them about their knowledge of the Spirit. That, uh, chapter 3, rather, verse 1 through 9. Oh, Foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Gosh. Thank you, Paul. I resemble that remark. Is that what they would have said? Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? You were shown what Jesus did for you, and you believed in him, and now you're turning your back on that? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing 
of faith. Which, which was taught to you? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, he's being hard, yes, but he's concerned for them. It's his Christian love for his brethren that were being lost because they were reverting back to believing these lies. More stuff would have been able to be foisted on them and and just divert them from the truth. And he's saying, are you so foolish? Don't you remember Christ died for you? What does it have to do with these other things that are of the flesh, not of faith, not of grace? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, he do it, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? He's breaking it down for them. Which is it? What, what is it that's doing this work in your lives? Is it the law? Is it those things, those rules, those regulations, those traditions that the Jews have had for so many years? Is that what's doing the work now? Or is it because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You see, Abraham did not have the law. Abraham had faith. Abraham believed in God in faith. There was no Jewish law at the time. There was no Jewish nation at the time, actually. But he had faith in God. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, By faith, what's he saying? Thinking ahead, knowing what the future was, as God does, he knew that the Gentiles would be coming to the knowledge of Christ. Seeing ahead, he says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed because of your faith. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You get it? In between Abraham and in between Jesus Christ, there was the law. There was the law. The law had not been given to Abraham yet. He moved by faith. He heard the Lord and obeyed. Perhaps the Gentiles were confused by this time because of the misinformation that the men of the circumcision had brought to them. For this reason, Paul was led to address the gospel 
of the difference between the law and faith. Let's read in chapter 3, 13 through 29. It's a long passage, but we can do it. I believe it bears hearing it. It, it needs to be heard. It says, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So in other words, if you are under the law, you better obey all the points of the law, not pick and choose. Much like many Christians want to pick and choose out of Christianity, what Christ was serious about and other things that he may be said, well, you know, if you can do that, if you can't, uh, don't worry about it. No, 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 there was nothing like that. The law was very specific to about, this is the law, you either live by it or you're not in compliance. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Is that a blessing or what? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We are no longer under the curse of the law. We are under grace, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Did Christ hang on a tree? That's what the cross is. That's what they call it. That's what he did for us. He took the curse with him to the cross. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. You can't add to the Word of God. You can't change it. In fact, part of the wording that is used in, in, in one of the Gospels says, you cannot even change a tittle, which is a little mark over a word. You can't even change that. Or you are adding or subtracting from the Word of God. That's how pure it has to be. That's how pure it has to stay. You can't even change a little accent mark. Now, to Abraham and his seed, singular, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, Here's the verification that the law came in way, way after Abraham believed in faith. 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Nothing that happened once the law came in is going to cancel out the covenant that God made with Abraham. That's what he's saying. Nothing that happened later cancels that promise to Abraham. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of the promise, of promise from God. But God gave it to Abraham by 
promise. By promise. What purpose then does the law serve? Here's the reason that the law had to be given. It was added because of transgressions till the seed, Jesus Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So until Jesus came, they had to have something that would control them, that would help them be organized, that would help them to keep order in the nation. The law was given to them. The law was given to them. Remember where it was given to them? Out in the desert, where only they were with God where only Moses was talking to God and bringing them the word of God. The law was given to them out there just for themselves because they were going to start being a terrible people. Now a mediator does not mediate for only for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would not, would have been by the law. So the law would have, if the law could replace the promise, the law would have told them what was going to happen, what God was going to do for them, what was their requirements were, and all of that other stuff. The law would have canceled out the Spirit, grace, all of those things that Christ brought. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. You understand? The law kept them under guard, kept them in, kept them in line, so to speak, kept them under wraps so that they wouldn't just go wildly all over the place and do whatever they wanted all the time. There were a lot of laws. Not only were there a lot of laws that God gave, but they added a whole bunch to their own law, which they couldn't keep. There were too many. It, I mean, it got to a ridiculous point. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need that law. Christ has come to redeem us, and his truth is what we now receive. In him we have faith. Through his grace we are saved. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? We are all the same in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. Wow. So nobody can tell me that because they're six feet tall, they're better than me who's only 5'5". Five five. 
right? Right. God's not looking at stature. God's not looking at the color of my eyes, at the size of my body. He's looking at my heart. And he's looking at yours too. And he's seeing what's in there. And that is what is going to get us into heaven or not. Although we don't have the law today, there are still ways that different churches try to burden their congregants through rules, regulations, traditions, and whatnot. Many requirements are not necessarily spelled out, but they are inferred so that control of people is very evident. Very evident. I went, I'm not going to mention the, the name of the church, but I, I went to visit a church one time before I started coming to Calvary. We were looking for a place to congregate. And we sat at the back. New people usually do that. You know, they start looking for the, the back. <laughs> so maybe for a quick exit, in case they don't like what they hear. But we sat in the back. And a couple of ladies came over and said, welcome. You know, we can do anything, let us know. By the way, we have a lot of seats up front. And I said, thank you. We're fine here. We'll, we'll just stay here for now. Another guy came by later. Won't you folks uh, move up to the front so that we can leave the back seats for the latecomers? And I said, well, you know what? I'd rather not see any latecomers, but I'm comfortable here. If you don't mind, I'm going to stay here. Another person came by later, and I said, you know what? We need to get out of here. I came to hear the word, not to be led over to where I need to sit or whatever, if I can't sit here, what if I wanted to stand in the corner and just listen from over there? I can't? Is that what this is about, control? Then I don't need to be here. I don't want to be here. I don't feel comfortable already. That means that it's going to distract me from the word. This isn't where I need to be. So we left. We went to, I'm not going to say the name either because this one you would recognize but it was in California, and my brother, my brother-in-laws all live out there, brothers-in-law, and one of them came with us. He was Catholic, and he had his two younger girls that were about 12, 13 years old, and they were sitting with us up towards the front, because by this time, we were churchgoers, so we went up to the front. Two guys came by to tell him, we have a youth group that meets out in the back, and they said, no, I'm just, uh, my girls are okay. They're not disruptive or noisy or anything. We'll, we'll just stay here because we're just visiting today. Another one came by later again, and he told his daughters, girls, let's go to our church. We don't belong here. And he got up and left. Where's the love of God that would say, okay, you're comfortable here? Just don't let them be disruptive or don't let them interfere with the service, whatever. Would have been much better than making this guy who was visiting there and might have heard the call that day to leave because of requirements of children can't be here. What do you mean? Christ let the children come to him. Christ called them to him. In fact, he said, if you don't become like this child, you may not go to heaven because that's what heaven is made of. 
those that are innocent like these children. Anyway, that's what I'm talking about. That's not in the Bible. You won't find that in there, okay? It's not of God. In chapter 5, verses 22 through 26, Paul tells us this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk. Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If none of these attributes, in none of them, does it give anyone the right to burden another? Joy, peace, how is, that going to, how is that going to translate if you start putting pressure on somebody to do something that they don't want to do or that has nothing to do with listening to the Word of God? How does that bring joy to you? How does that bring love to the other person? Long-suffering, kindness, goodness. How does that show when we try to control others by rules and regulations that do not in any way enhance the word of God. And that's the importance. The word of God is pure, has its own power, does its own work, does not need our help. It works by the power of God. These are the qualities that God meant and still does to give believers. And as we show these qualities in our lives, we testify that Jesus is in us. As we are told in the book of John 14, 21, this is the requirement. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me. Does it require the hair not touching the color? Does it require us coming in here with the best of our clothing and look for the best place? All of these places are the best, okay? Anywhere you sit in this sanctuary is the best because you can hear the word of God anywhere here. But we have to dress up. And it's great to dress up if you want, but not for the purpose of I'm honoring God. Here's where you honor God. Are you honoring him here? Because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are you going to be talking about? What God has put in your heart. Not what you are dressed like, not what your attire, your sartorial perfection is not going to affect anyone in a good way about the Word of God. It doesn't matter if you come in and your clothes are tattered or, well, in fact, it does matter because we'd like to help him if we can. If you're hungry, we'd like to feed you if we can. But you're not required 
in any way to, have, to be dressed in a uniform of any type. You come as you can to hear the word. That's what we have in abundance to share with you. Since we don't have the law, but would rather live by faith in Christ, the promise or promises of God are given to us through that faith and by the grace of God. Amen.